Hello. (laughs) (laughs) David Calvert, introduce yourself. Hello. Yes, I'm David Calvert. That's not quite as nerve-wracking as I thought it would be. Um, Yes, I'm David Calvert. I'm a portrait photographer from Much Haddam in Hertfordshire. Well, I'm recording the intro and outro to this particular podcast at quarter to one in the morning in a silent studio. It's Sunday evening, and I've just spent the week at the Societies of Photographers, the SWPP convention in London. It's one of the highlights of the year when thousands of photographers all descend on this little corner of West London to do nothing uh, but learn, laugh, drink and catch up with each other. Uh, Talking about photography, I've been uh, judging the print competition down there with so many of just the most amazing photographers. It was my privilege to sit on a judging panel with some incredible guys, uh, then running masterclasses and superclasses. It truly is a highlight of the year. I will tell more stories I will tell more stories of the things that went on there in the coming weeks. Uh, but I wanted to get this podcast out there. This is an interview I held a few weeks ago with one of my favourite guys in the industry, a, a photographer called David Calvert, who's not just a phenomenal photographer, brilliant, brilliant photographer, but also just the nicest guy. It proves you can be uh, a brilliant creative, although he will deny he's a creative in the interviews you'll hear, but a brilliant creative as well as being a super nice guy. I'm going to set the scene for you. Uh, We are sitting in his beautiful kitchen in his little cottage uh, in the back end of nowhere. Myself and Sarah went over to see him. And uh, we're sitting at a a kitchen table, drinking coffee and chatting. If you hear creaking, that's David's chair. I could hear it in the recording, but there wasn't an awful lot I could do about it. Every time he gets animated, this chair creaks, so bear with me. Uh, But this interview is great. It's quite wide-ranging. It covers everything from how he got into the industry and um, some of the mistakes he's learned along the way to a very, very funny story. A very funny story about when he photographed a dead dog without even realising it. But of course, I start the interview with the most basic things of all. How on earth did you become a photographer? Originally, what in, um, as I uh, got interested in photography when I was um, in my teens, I used to borrow my dad's camera he was um he was a very good snapper he wasn't a good photographer but he was snapper he could always get his pictures in focus he had a kodak retinar camera yeah and he taught me how to use it manually he would um he would say if it was sunny set the camera to 125 yeah. um f8 and if it's really sunny 250 f8 if it's a bit cloudy set it to 60th and he said you'll be fine and and he was always really good at that um and with the photography side, so I was always quite interested in it, but in terms of portrait photography, the only what really started me was when I was at school. I I was in about the fifth year, what we as we used to call it then, and there was this girl who was a prefect in the sixth form who I used to really fancy, and I was far too shy to ask her out. But my art teacher, a guy called uh, Mr. Lloyd, and he was a he was a fantastic, really inspirational teacher. And he set up a photography club and he was going to use this girl as a, as a model. And I thought, if I go along with my dad's camera and take a few pictures, she'll um, she'll fall madly in love with me and we'll walk together in, into the sunset together. But it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but I did find a, a, a love in, in taking portraits. And um, academically, I wasn't particularly good at school. I think my mum and dad soon realised I wasn't going to be a lawyer or an accountant. 
so they really encouraged me so they used to get me um, little jobs and things like that and um, they um, let me use one of the rooms in in um, our house as a as a studio in a dark room so I had my Courtney color flash floor lamps to remember those and my Shinon CM4 camera and I had my, my little Durst enlarger and I, that's how I uh, that's what I did um, and just did portraits and it's um, and I became hugely um, influenced by two photographers Patrick Litchfield yeah and which I think you can see in my work has quite a classical feel my work and also David Bailey uh, and I used to love his um, really stark black and white portraits you know remember the ones he did of the Beatles yeah. and Michael Caine and the craze the famous where you you know really harsh um, shadows and brilliant white backgrounds the contrast and I used to love those and what I used to do I used to try and emulate David Bailey's and Patrick Litchfield's um, uh, work and I had um, my sort of textbook my instruction manual for photography because in those days you didn't have um, YouTube so there was a book that Litchfield did called The Most Beautiful Women and I used to copy and emulate the shots and the poses and I had no idea how he did the lighting setups but I used to look at the catch lights in the eyes and it used to be like a square catch light in the eye and think oh he's obviously used something square there and then I, in Amateur Photographer magazine, I saw a softbox. I'm like, ah, oh, well, you must have used one of those. And that, and I, that's how I did it. I just copied the um, the photographs. And um, it sort of all got a bit out of hand after a while. And I went to art college for two years. Um, but I was primarily self-taught. So everything I was being taught in the art college, I already knew. But I would say without sounding big-headed. And it wasn't a particularly good course because all the kit never didn't work. They used to have these really old Bronica cameras, which the first generation Bronica cameras, but they were all faulty. So if you took a picture, the picture would always come out of focus because the mirrors were out of position. Everything was um, out of focus. So I just spent most of the time down the pub. And then I got a, um, when I left art college, I got a job with an audiovisual company, um, which was run by a chap called George Pollock. I don't know if you know him. He was the past president of the Royal Photographic Society. Oh, okay. And him and his son, David, ran this audiovisual company that we used to sell tape slide equipment, like projector dissolve equipment and higher stuff. And that's when the photography really started taking off. And I was sort of getting lots of phone calls from people saying, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And... Um, and then one day they just came to me and said, you know, we can see your heart set in photography. Um, how about we offer you an office and use of our studio? Because they had a video production studio free of charge for a year and you can set up your own business. And I thought, wow. Um, so um, I um, literally within a month set up as a professional photographer. And I'd, I'd got some equipment, which I'd won through various competitions I'd won. I'd won a big competition with Practical Photography magazine, won a thousand quid's worth of Bronica gear. And I set up and the business, and it was a, a quite a baptism of fire, um, because I knew nothing. And I did mainly commercial photography, for starters. Um, and it was a real baptism, baptism of fire. Um, really didn't know what I was doing, didn't know how to run a business or anything like that. And then about a year later, I then um, took on a business partner, a girl called Nikki, who was brilliant. And she was a schools photographer. Uh, she worked for Photek, I think as they were called. She, she was a very good photographer, but she also had a very good business head, and which I didn't have. I was rubbish at business. So she got the, sort of that business element straight. And then things started to really fly. This is about late 1980s now. And... Um, so it was going pretty well for about two or three years, and then the recession hit. 
And unfortunately, because of um, family reasons, Nikki had to leave the business and relocate down to Devon. So I was left sort of holding the baby, so to speak. And um, said we had a very good business partnership. Said she dealt with the business side, and I was then suddenly having to deal with the business side, which I wasn't used to, and basically made a bit of a mess of it. Coupled with the fact that I also had troubles with clients, I, a lot of the clients I dealt with were design consultants and um, ad agencies who are notoriously bad payers. They would take three to six months to pay, and that caused me like massive headaches. And so in the, um, I think it was about 93, I decided, because I was getting seriously in debt and everything like that, I decided to um, jack it in for a year to get myself sorted out, pay the debts. Um, so I gave up the business, but um, as I said, with the intention of taking a year or so off and then going back into it, but that year or so off ended up being 10 years. And I then, um, in the interim period, I, I, I'd gone to work for another couple of audiovisual companies in London as a as a service manager working in a in a um, repair and maintenance department, we re- repaired and maintained broadcast video gear and all that sort of stuff. Got absolutely fed up with that, and then about the, sort of the late the late nineties, about 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 two thousand, I then decided I wanted to get back into it, and then in two thousand and three. I made the move and we were living, my wife and I were living in London at the time and we moved up here and we set up business and we, we've, I've done it in a much different way now because beforehand, back in the 80s, if you wanted an overdraft or a bank loan, the banks would go, yeah, sure, have that, you know, and I got myself into quite serious debt with that and so I decided this occasion, when we set up the business, there'll be no bank loans, no overdrafts, no building, uh, build, buildings renting, so we keep my risk down to a an absolute minimum and it's it and, and it's um and it's worked so you know i i am now home based um all my work is done in my converted garage which measures about 15 foot by 15 foot something like that um and i have a small office about a six foot by six foot office where i do all my editing it looks like a bomb site all the time my wife gets really cross um and so I've, and that's what i've been for the last 15 years and how do you find working from your home? Um, I, I enjoy I'm quite disciplined, although I'm, I'm a massive procrastinator. I can get distracted, but when a job needs to be done, I'm, I'm great. I'm on it, especially like the Christmas period I've had. Um, I, I edit the job straight away and I'm really good. And I was, again, for, for yet another year, I was absolutely on top of everything. Um, so, yes, not too bad. Um, um, some uh, one of the things I do have to do occasionally you have to do a bit of housework and stuff like that and do stuff but it's a small price to pay I think my wife gets a bit jealous because she works in the city and but I I, I, I like it I, I, and I, I work by myself I don't have any an army of staff and I'm, I'm cool with that I'm quite happy to work by myself as well so yeah it, it's all it's all fine yeah because myself and Sarah we had a, a home set up for quite a long time yeah and I think there were two points three, if you include Sarah sending emails out in her pyjamas early in the morning, where we decided we had to change it. The first was when one of my clients went to the go to the toilet and found our son sitting on the toilet reading a comic. <laughs> that's, that's I'll tell you a story about that. That's always good yeah, for your yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the second was when uh, we recruited Michelle, who's still with us, and one day she protested that her mouse was no longer working, and so I took the mouse off, I turned it upside down. And had a look inside, and there was a Kellogg's cornflakes stuck to the board. Oh, very nice. And it was a, those were the moments when, do you know what? We need somewhere else. Go on, tell me your story. I could, well, the, the it, it mainly has to do um, with our, our lovely cat, beloved cats. Um, we'd just done a, there's two stories actually. We'd done a shoot with a family 
that included a grandmother. And this was a few years ago before our old, very elderly cat now, Minnie, or who, who just sleeps all day now, but she's a, a voracious hunter. And she brought in the mouse and left it disemboweled in, in our reception area. When the grandmother came out, there was this just dead mouse covered in blood all over the place and she just screamed the head off. Um, and there was another occasion before we had the extension, the clients used to come in here to change and I opened the door of the house and there was this big waft of black feathers and our other cat Bobby just standing there with a the dead blackbird in his mouth. Um, thank God that the owner, that, that particular woman, she was a cat person, so I totally understand, but it was still a bit embarrassing that she had to change her clothes with all the, <laughs> the bird feathers. So you get a little bit of that. Um, but the... the um, Domestic, you know, mixing clients don't seem to mind. Like, you know, we, we don't let them in the house now because we've got this sort of purpose built extension now for them and it that works really well and it's nice and comfortable. But I think most photographers now are moving off the, the high street now anyway. Um, so I'm, you know, I it's you know, so I, I think it's cool and I think the clients like it and it's a nice, relaxed, hopefully a nice, relaxed experience for them. Oh, it looks beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, but it, it's nice, just nice and simple, you know, and it, it works well. We had the extension. Um, because we were offered a studio um, about five or six years ago in Bishop Stortford, which unfortunately closed, very well-respected photographer there, and he decided to call it a day. And we were offered it, but the, the overheads were just going to be astronomical, about, I think, 20,000, 30,000 quid a year. And I just the thought of throwing that money down the toilet and getting nothing. And so we decided to um, invest in bricks and mortar and build the extension, make the customer experience much better, because I wanted to cater for the higher end of the market rather than the lower end and um beforehand everyone was sort of cooped up in the studio sitting on the floor there was no nowhere to relax so so we had this built um and it, it's it's been very positive yeah i think the clients like it no no negative reviews yet touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about finding high-end clients how do you go about finding high-end clients um i i sort of the way I look at it, the clients I want to attract are the ones who shop at Waitrose. Those are the, the, what I, I, I call it. It's, I, I, get, I seem to just get them on Facebook. Um, I do promos on Facebook. Um, and I also occasionally do fates and shows, but I, I'm very choosy. Like, the, for instance, there's one fate I do locally here, and I know the standard of the client is absolutely fantastic. So, But Facebook promotions, again, I target specific towns and villages I know are affluent and that tends to um t tends to work um quite well and it's a lot of my work now is, is is now repeat um repeat work you know in fact the virtually most of my january shoots although i haven't got much in the diary at the moment most of my january shoots are um are all repeat clients they're sort of the people i'm i, I have a sort of more like sort of senior management you know managers um directors and that sort of thing um, and um, and they, they they spend quite well, which is which which is nice. What does your wife do? She's a lawyer. <laughs> of course. She specialises in um, what is it? Um, compliance and risk. Right. Yawn. Even she would say that. <laughs> and she's very good. She works in the city. She works for a big um, law firm in, in, in the city called Field Fisher. And uh, she was going to go self-employed as well, but um, she was offered this job because she, she originally did professional negligence of negligent lawyers and accountants, but um, she got fed up with that and she was offered this position doing risk and compliance. So she was, for instance, doing GDPR for a law firm, which was a, an absolute nightmare considering that they have divisions in all over the world trying to get everyone to be compliant has, has been great fun. 
Do you find being married to a lawyer helps you when you're dealing with some of the high-end clients you have in? Um, I sometimes drop it. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm quite nosy. I ask clients what they do. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I, I actually have quite a lot of lawyers, a lot of accountants I get. Um, but that, that can help a little bit if you, if you talk on their level. It does, yeah. Because I, I, I can do the, you know, if I, I'm, I have people from all walks of life, so it's not just the, pop, you know, what I call the posh people. I, I have, um, and so I, I can talk on. I'm pretty good at talking at all, all, all sorts of levels, so I can change my voice accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard you. Do you do that? Do you do that? No, no, I don't. But I do change the conversation depending on who. I'm oh yes, to. yes. I tend. To avoid swearing if there's oh, um, young people. But other than We were that, talking about swearing before we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have to be very careful with that. Yeah. yeah. But if, yeah. I, if I've got a gang of teenagers, you know, I did the other day accidentally drop an F-bomb in completely. And I looked at the parents thinking, oh, I'm in trouble for that. And they just roared with laughter. Yeah. And, and, well, I sometimes, if I can get away with it, I like to talk to kids about farting because that was... Um, and I sort of gingerly look at the clients to make sure they're, they're cool about that. Or I just take the mickey out of the dad. Um... But yeah, I do that. But the whole psychology of making a connection with your client in a hugely accelerated time frame. I mean, they walk in, you have to connect. Yeah, I the first thing I do is we just I sit down. The first thing I want to do is connect with the kids. And I know a lot of photographers just ignore the kids, and I think that's a really wrong thing to do. First, because you need to get them on your side. Yeah. That's the first thing. So the first thing, if it's brother or sister, ask, do you get on with each other? And like, what you know, I always say things like, you know, what's the most annoying thing about your sister? you know, um, and um, all, all that sort of stuff. And I make the joke, and I always say, you know, things like, um, oh, by the way, you know, your mum and dad love it when you leave Lego on the floor because when they go to bed at night, they tread on it and they, <laughs> they, they think that's really funny. Um, the first thing I do is connect with the kids and literally sit for five or ten minutes just talking to the kids um, and getting them on, on their side. Literally, as soon as they get out of the car, because as soon as they arrive here, I'm out there. I look for them so they don't... I, I'm there before they press the doorbell. Um, and I do the high fives, fist bumps and all that sort of stuff for them and all that. Um, and then we get round to talking about what they actually want. It's quite interesting sometimes because a lot of the clients I get sometimes actually don't know what they want. Yeah. So you have to tell them, yeah. um, you know. So what I would, would do in a typical shoot, I would start with the priority shot, with the family, especially if they've got young kids because we know they go off the boil very, very quickly. So I get the priority shot done. Um, so I might do three different family group shots, but I'll, I'll start with a family group shot and then do a shot of the kids and then another family group shot, another shot of the kids. So, and then I finish off with, um, just individual portraits of the kids. Very rare. The mum and dad actually want pictures of themselves. I get quite a lot of them saying, you're going to be, you know, we'll obviously have you in the picture and they go, Oh no, we don't want to be in the picture. Yeah. You know, they just want the kids. So, um, so we do a nice, nice little selection on a typical shoot will last about 60 to 90 minutes. Okay. Something like that. And that's primarily studio based. Yes. You don't go outside. It, I do. Occasionally, it's funny. I don't seem to have much luck with outdoor because every time I book an, a location shoot, it pisses down with rain. <laughs> um, and it's really lovely around here. But um, most of the, uh, most of my stuff is studio based. I feel because I, I, I can control things in, uh, in in the studio, like light. Um, you know, I can control the, the lighting a little bit better. Um, but I, it, it's it's funny actually. I was only thinking about this the other day. When I seem to do location shoots, I seem to get more photographs out of focus. I don't know why. Um, and um, I, I just prefer studio. I like the control. Yeah. You know, just prefer the control of, of, of doing everything. 
And you mentioned in sort of in passing about, you know, sometimes you have to take control. Do you not think there's an argument that you should, as a photographer, always take control? I mean, they're, they're your client are looking to you as the artist. I, I, um, I, th- I think you do have to, because I was saying before that you, um, the, a, lot of clients, a lot of clients turn up when they're not exactly sure what they want. So I, I suggest so perhaps control I guide perhaps mm-hmm. that's a better a better way. So I'll say to them, um, at, you know, when we're, we're talking, the meeting was, you know, perhaps um, we'll do a shot of all of you together, and then we will do some shots of the kids, and they normally nod nod yes. And I'll say, do you have a preference to color and black and white? Because certain setups will look better in color or black and white. Um, again, most of them don't have a particular preference. Some do, which is nice. If they say black and white, think great. Um, and um, so, yeah, we sort of, I suppose guide them yeah. to, to, to a certain degree. Or, and sometimes they may look at the pictures in the studio and say, oh, we quite like that. And we say, okay, yeah, we can, you know, we'll, we'll do that. Or we can perhaps change it a little bit so it doesn't look exactly the same. And what does your workflow look like? So you do the shoot and then at some point you do the prep. Yeah, um, I do the shoot. Um, one of my big faults is, um, and, and I, I pay for this terribly in, in post-production, is I always overshoot and I'm, it's a pain in the backside I just shoot far too much don't you um so um I, what, I, what do you consider to be too much well I um I, I did a shoot the other other week which I, I shot 350 frames in, in and which was just way too much I, I normally aim for about 200 to 220 something like that the worst I ever did was 550 and it was because I had a particularly crazy um, bunch of kids and I think I went into what spray and pray mode you know and I kicked myself because you've got to cull that down so what I do is I I, I um, put them on the computer and I don't bother looking at them for a few days so I completely virtually completely forget so I look at them at fresh eyes and then I um, what I then do is I then select the ones I quite like and I'll select one image from each setup we did and I'll do a full edit on it. So I have about six or eight images, fully edited images. And those are the ones I then hit them with right at the very beginning. So they, because I, I say to a client when they come in for the viewing, um, don't do, do online viewings, by the way, always in person. Um, so I'll say to them about the importance of editing because the picture may not necessarily, the, the raw image may not necessarily tell the whole story. If you change an element in the photo, crop it differently, um, change it to black and white you can often dramatically affect the overall appearance of a, a photo so I hit them with a, a little 30 second slideshow so they've got a rough idea of what, what's going to happen and then I then show them um, I think it's normally up to 50 shots so it's normally about five or six images from each setup that I do because if you show clients too many images it's I think 50 sometimes is even too much how many do you do you do uh, we do about 40 70 depending on the client yeah depending so on what you do if we've got like a multi-family group so yeah. I've got grandparents and then three siblings with their yeah. families then it'd be 70 yeah because clients think they want to see loads of pictures but they don't no. it just adds confusion to but I, I have actually tracked all of our data for the past two years and the cat's out of the pit <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> and I'm going to leave that in um, oh, sorry. So I've, over the past two years, I've been plotting the correlation between the number of images shot, the number of images shown, and the revenue generated. Right. And there is a correlation. The more images we show, the more money we'll take off a shoot. But that doesn't necessarily mean because of it. 
it might just be that those were multifamily groups and I haven't got quite enough data to nail that. Right, okay. So a big, like a, you know, like three families, three siblings with their kids and a set of grandparents is always going to net more revenue and they tend to be the mm. higher image count. So at the moment, we're still working it out. Right, okay, now that's interesting. No, but I, I do about, I aim for 50. Yeah. So we go through, we do a couple of um, culls, sorry, and I get it down to about 10 shots. And then we put them all up on the screen. And I then say, right, and what I always do to the client about two days before the viewing, I'll send them an email asking them to um, um, have a little think about what they want. Obviously appreciate it's difficult to know what you want until you see the photos, but, um, and have a think about where they're going to place them because so many occasions I've had the clients turn up and they, they haven't thought about, they just simply think they go of that one. But then when you explain what can be done, they suddenly go, Oh, hang on. And some clients read the info I have on my FAQ page. Some don't. And it's really irritating when when they don't because it just takes and it's just, it's more, you know, it's more confusing for them. But the ones who come, normally the ones who mean business and they spend um, spend very well. And then we start, I do a little tour of the products, tell them how much it's cost. I'm always very transparent about the prices I charge. I can't understand photographers who who hide their prices. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, um, I, all in all, I, they get a, a client gets a price list upon inquiry at any time. They get um, a copy of the price list on booking confirmation and they get another copy of the price list when um, um, they, the email two days before the viewing goes. So, but again, sometimes clients don't read it, but there you go. Um, but, um, and it, it, it tends to work, work well for me. No. How many how many shoots how many shoots a month do you do? Um, not a massive amount. I'm not conveyor belt type. Um, should I do between ten and fifteen? Okay. Something like that. Um, which um, yeah, I I didn't want to do the. I know some photographers I mean, they have to do eight or ten shoots a week or something like that because of their overheads. But I'm I'm quite lucky. I don't have to have to do that. And hopefully, um, but you know, and I, I do okay out of it. And how do you feel about it all? Oh, in terms of insecurities, um, I used to have terrible self-confidence problems. Um, uh, I, you know, I used to think my work was rubbish, um, awful, and I, I used to have quite severe anxiety. I'm, I've suffered from anxiety quite a while. And um, when I first started, um, I used to get, absolutely terrified before shoots and even on shoots which I knew I was quite capable of doing well within my technical um, capabilities I used to get absolutely terrified I remember once doing a shoot um, for a husband and wife and they had two dogs one of them was a drug sniffing dog and the other one was a bomb sniffing dog and then Megan and Monty never forget it Spaniel in her lab and I remember shaking hands with the with the husband and I was desperately trying not to be not to, to be sick and um, I, I honestly used to have terrible hang-ups about thinking how terrible my work was and everything like that. Um, but I'm a lot better now um, because, as my wife pointed out to me, you don't get a fellowship and you don't win competitions unless you're, you're any good, you know, unless you're good. You, you, if, if you're crap, then you don't win them. And, um, but I'm, I'm a lot better now and I still have... Uh, hang-ups like you know when I enter the awards every year I just look at the pictures and go oh they're crap horrible rubbish 
And so, yeah, I, I, I still have that to, to, to deal with. Um, and it, it's quite funny because I actually suffer slightly from social anxiety as well, mingling with people, parties and everything like that. But it's funny, as soon as I put a camera in hand, it's like showtime, I'm fine. Yeah. It's weird. Um, you know, as soon as the start of the shoot, it went. Everything yeah. was fine. Yeah. It was rocking. Um, but, um, you know, but I'm a lot better than I was. But I actually had actually I had to get a little bit of little bit of help for a while um, when I first started. I just real serious anxiety issues. And I know I'm not the only photographer. I know certain photographers who are just absolutely... Uh, there's one photographer, I won't mention who they are, just the most incredible portrait photographer I've ever seen. And they, their hang-ups and insecurities, um, are, 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 um, you know, it's, it's amazing, you know. But I, I don't think I'm the, other, I'm the only person who thinks that. No, I don't, I don't think you are either. And I th- but I suspect as an industry, we don't... We, there are too many people out there too quick to brag about the successes and not yes. honest enough with themselves or others. It makes other people... I, I, I'm, it's, it's like when you go to talks... And it's good to celebrate success, but sometimes I've been to talks and um, the, the the speaker has done a great talk, and they but they say, oh yeah, I've got such a full diary, and I'm just so successful. I jet off here and I jet off there, and and it sort of makes me you feel a little bit. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, underachieving. Underachieve, yeah. Um, and I I think it's important that. Photographers also ought to tell about the things that didn't go right, the failures. And I think you can learn more about the failures than you can the successes. I'm, I'm, I've learned, I was, I was saying before, I'm self-taught and I've, I've learned from making mistakes. What's the know. biggest mistake you've ever made? <laughs> I, I think when, uh, when, when I first, when I was back in the 80s, I just had no, I just had no disregard about money. I, I remember... Um, I had, one time I had a pile of invoices and a final demand from the VAT people and I had just about enough money in the account to pay, pay it all off. And then a friend of mine rang up and said, do you want to go to, uh, I've, uh, do you want, I've got a spare plane ticket, I'm going to New York on Boxing Day, do you want to come? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and I blew all the money in New York, buying Metallica CDs in New York and sort of got home and suddenly thought, ah, oh, you know, and it, it was... Um, I said I was very bad with money, and I think I've I've learnt from my mistakes about um, you know money and stuff. It's like now the business is completely debt free. If I was to walk away from it tomorrow, I wouldn't owe a penny. So, um, uh, so I've learnt from that. And I said I used to have a terrible disregard for money. My my priorities were always completely wrong. So yeah, that's probably one of the biggest mistakes I made. But I'm a lot better now. And, and if you could give. I'm always a bit cautious about this, but if you could give a starting out photographer today one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, there's two I can think of. The first one would be um, don't copy what everyone else is doing. I remember when I went for my licentiate panel with and Ray Lowe was my mentor, which is quite interesting. Um, Ray has a very good way of evaluating photos. He just looks at them and he goes, that's great, crap, shit. And um, he was going through my photos. And at that time, when I started back in early, in 2003, um, Venture was the big thing. And everyone was doing the real brilliant white backgrounds and bleached, you know, bleached look and all this sort of stuff. And I, I 
I jumped on the bandwagon and just copied what everyone else was doing. And Ray also noticed something in my license, licensure panel, which was my own sort of style of work. And he said, you've got to concentrate on that. He said, forget about the venture. He said, everybody's doing that. If you concentrate on your style, you'll stand out from the crowd. If you just copy what everyone else does, you'll just blend into the background. No one will notice you. You've got to sell your studio on a, on, on a signature style. And he was absolutely right. And the second thing was, I think, is don't undercharge. I think the, the, things, the thing that really gets my goat is when I see look at other photographers' websites, and I look at other photographers' websites, and they're selling their digital files for 10 quid each. They might as well just do the whole thing for free. And it's, I think, one of the biggest mistakes the photographers make is giving those digital files away. I mean, I actually don't mention digital files. I only do if I really have to. And I sell them at a premium price, you know, a minimum quantity. I think I sell them for 100 quid each, and they've got to buy five. Yeah. So it's 500 quid for five images. Um, so, and, um, but don't give away your work, you know. I think that's basically it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, a story you told me, and there's no way I'm letting an interview with oh. you go past <laughs> without you telling me this the, particular the, story. The dog story. The dog story. The uh, dog story. Um, it wasn't the two dogs I was talking about earlier on before. Um, this happened... This is the classic story of never work with children um, and animals. Um, basically, this happened back in around about 1980, something like that. And I, it's before I turned professional, but my mum and dad, bless them, used to try and get me jobs. And my dad got me this job with this very well-to-do family. And they, they asked me if I'd um, go to the house and do a, a family portrait. So I went along with me colour flash fours and me shin on, and I and they 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 had this lounge and I, I, I said I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I, I they had them this sofa and I was setting up the lights and in walks this girl who's about five or six years old with this with the family dog and it's like this old, um, uh, it's it's like I think it was a golden retriever and it was a real old lollipy old thing, and um, I thought. Well, that's not going to look very good. So I thought the dog needs to be, you know, perked up a bit. And I said to the little girl, can you run the dog around the block a little bit? And, you know, hopefully it'll come back, you know, sort of, you know, a little more perked up. And um, she went off. And I remember the mum was in the next room and I heard her call out. She said, and she said to the little girl, careful, darling, he's very old. So don't overdo it. Anyway, sure enough, that... Ten, five, ten minutes later, she came back, and the dog looked much, you know, much looking, looking much better. And I arranged the family in some haphazard way on the on the sofa, and I put the dog on the left hand side of the sofa on the floor. And um, I was just about to start taking the photo, and just the, suddenly the dog just went <laughs> flump on the floor, <laughs> and it just looked like this big lump of smelly fur and so I said to the little girl can you like sit next to him and try and haul him up and of course for a little five or six year old girl a fully grown retriever and she had like the dog's head around her arm like you know trying to haul the thing up and the dog's just sort of sitting there like you know looking pretty comatose and um, anyway so I carried on doing the photos and and um, fit with, that's all they wanted and so she left us left the dog on the floor and I packed up my gear and went and um, so I sent the pictures off to the chemist because we didn't have digital in those days and um, and I sent the prints off the 5x4s off and um, didn't hear from them so I called them up 
And I said, you know, is, is everything all right? And she said, I'm, af I'm afraid not. And basically, she then went on to explain <laughs> that I'd got some nice photographs of their family with their dying or dead dog. <laughs> It's not funny. <laughs> and of course, I, I felt completely mortified. I mean, obviously not as mortified as the dog. <laughs> and she, she would... She, she was... She was... She was saying it to you. And I, I, I just like... And I say, I'm so sorry. And she's saying, don't worry, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. She was, he was very old. And she insisted on paying me. So I sent her a bill for about a fiver or something like that. But yeah, so nice, nice family portrait with their family with their, their dead dog. Um, I'm, I'm much better now. What a spot. No, I, 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 you know, but yeah, it's uh, so, um, yeah, so, you know, it, I, I want to add that was said nearly 30 or so years ago, and, like, you know, no one's died in my. Oh, you shouldn't laugh. It was terrible. I, I felt absolutely, you know, I felt absolutely. I, mean, I was only about sort of 18, 19 years old at that sort of age. But, um, so, yeah, the classic never work with children or animals story yeah <laughs> or music producers I've also been oh uh, yes this happened when I first started up yeah there was another one it, it makes it sound like all my shoots are disasters they're not actually they're all right um, the I did a when I first started one of the first jobs I got a mate of mine um, had started up a model agency and he had this girl who contacted him. he hadn't seen her before and she turned out to be a singer in a in a pop band, and um, so this is about 1987. And this girl had been—I'm not going to mention the name of the pop band—but they were around in the early 1980s, very uh, about 1980, and they had one hit single. It was a big top five hit single for them. And he said that she's contacted, wanting to know if, um, a name of photographer, and he recommended me. Anyway, so I remember this particular girl. She's a really sassy-looking girl. She looked fantastic, from what I remembered of her. Anyway. So um, she, we booked a shoot and she turned up and I was really looking forward to the shoot because I thought, yeah, she's really good looking and it's going to be fantastic. Anyway, it, um, and by this time, um, her, the band she'd in had split up and they were just a distant memory, you know, um, off, the, off the celebrity radar. And she turned up and um, I think the, the best way of putting it is she'd let herself go a little bit. And um, she looked nothing like how she did and um anyway and I thought okay not to worry and then she showed me what she wanted to she said I've got a specific idea of what I want and she said I, I want to do some shots of me sort of leaping around the place in this outfit and um I said fine it was and she said it's the only thing I bought with me so and she goes off and changes and comes back in this one piece black spandex outfit a cat suit type thing and it just was horrible it was absolutely it just wasn't didn't suit her at all and it as i said unfortunately she put on quite a lot of weight several stone and it just didn't suit her and i just knew from that point this it was going to be an unmitigated disaster the shot and i just sat there taking the photographs of her and, and during the shoot she was she started name dropping about all the people she worked with and in particular she mentioned Stott aiken and waterman and um she said she was uh, cl close friends with Pete Waterman 
and uh, and she was dropping you know Pete said this Pete said that Pete's going to write me a song and Pete said if you 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 the photographer here take lots of good pictures he'll use you and it was all this and I sort of pretended to be impressed but I didn't like Stockhake and Watton because I was a metalhead you know I like Judas Priest and Metallica and all and anyway um and I I just taking these shots knew they were going to be a disaster and when I actually process the shots that they were even worse than I thought they were they looked absolutely awful so I posted off the contact sheets and just waited for the bomb to drop and uh, two days later sure enough she was on on the phone and absolutely screaming her head off at me saying how terrible they were and she'd called me in the afternoon and in those days in the 80s we all used to go down the pub and have a few beers and things like that so I was, and, and I actually said to her, I, I totally agree. I said, I think you look terrible in the photos, but I said that the outfit was wrong, completely everything was wrong. Um, I'm sorry. And she then just went absolutely stratospherically ballistic. She said, I'm going to make sure that you never work in this industry again. The next person you're going to hear from is Pete Waterman. He's going to give you a call and he's going to give you what for and he's going to make sure that you never work in this industry again. And she just slams down the phone. And to this day, I'm still waiting for the call (laughs) from from Pete Waterman. Oh, yeah. Did, uh, did this particular person get a song written by Pete Waterman in the end? I've no idea. I don't think so. I'll tell you after who it was. Oh, no, you can't. Uh, but, I, but, um, but yeah, it was. Uh, oh, you know, have you ever had that shoot when they're just utter dread when you know that it's it's not going to work? I've out? had the dread. And there's there's a couple of shoots in particular. One in particular that stick, springs into mind, which. There's a shoot that I cut short because the kids were so feral that they were going to hurt themselves. Oh, uh, yeah. They were, they were going to fall over. or they, One of them was swinging off the TV at one point and it was going to come off the wall. Mm. So I cut the shoot short. I said, I think we've got everything we need. I didn't allude to, you know, anything other than that. Oh, and, they, and they turned out to be one of the biggest spenders we'd ever had. So I was waiting for this nasty moment. Mm, and, in and, fact, it, and it didn't yeah. happen. So I've, I've learned over the years that I'm a terrible judge of what does mm. and doesn't constitute in my mind as opposed to what the client's looking for because I colour it with the experience. Yeah. But they sometimes, for instance, a, a tricky family shoot will do really well because they didn't believe I could get anything and I've got more, more than they ever Oh, did. yeah, I've, I've had that. I, I, I did. I remember one, one issue I had, it was three kids in, and they were, uh, you mentioned the word feral, um, and I always, again, teach tell clients to read my FAQ sheet about, and one of the things is, please don't feed them sugary sweets or snacks before or during the shoot. And when they when I greased them at the car, they were all tucking into sweets and they were completely out of it on, yeah. on, on massive sugar rush. And um, my wife was in... The, 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 um, the, my studio is my garage, and um, she was in the house, which is the, the garage is connected to the uh, to the house, and she there were three walls separating, and she said she could hear the screaming clear as a bell, and on the day we did the shoot, it was a freezing cold day, and it was ice outside, and one of the kids runs out, and these kids were really bad, they were going up to you like, yeah, facing the camera, all this sort of stuff, and one of the kids runs out towards a pond that we've got in the garden, and. Um, and I said to the mum, can you get him? Because there's a pond, we don't want him falling in. And she said, oh, you'll be all right. And so I ran after him. And when I got there, he was standing, the, the, the pond had frozen over, and he was standing on the pond, jumping up and down on it. 
which was interesting. It's like, get off. But anyway, with that one, despite the fact that um, it was it was a, a, such a horrendous shoot, I actually it ended up one of the shots ended up on the magazine yeah. cover. So you know, and sometimes you know, it, 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 it worked it works out all right. I mean, thankfully, all the disastrous shoots. Um, you know, I make it sound like all my shoots are disastrous. They're not. Um, I can in the last fifteen years, I can count on one hand um, the the really the ones that I feel like I walked out being hit by a train. You know, um, the ones that always the alarm the alarm bells ring is when the parents say, "Oh, he's such a poser." That, that I think that that's um, and they turn out to be the complete opposite. They grab on because I actually quite like lively kids. Yeah. It shows they got spirit. The ones I worry about, the ones who um, are, are tied onto onto mum's leg and won't let go. Um, I, I, I like I like the and I don't mind it. And the parents say, "Doesn't it bother you?" And I said, "Nah, it, it just washes over me." And and sometimes I only I mean with these particular three kids, I actually had to raise my voice a little bit on that one because the mum wasn't taking control. She wouldn't. So someone has to. And there's nothing worse of losing control yeah. in a shoot. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing worse. You have spoken a couple of times during the interview about your well-earned fellowship, yes. uh, the licentiate you also mentioned, um, and awards. And I think I wanted to just ask a little bit about whether you think they're, for, they're a good thing for all photographers, whether they have been, from what you've spoken so far, they seem to have been a very positive Oh, for me, it's for been, yeah, um, a massive confidence booster. Because I said I had the self-confidence issues before. Um and to, I, I've always been open to critique. I think it's really important that you have your work critiqued because um, I always want to improve. I never, I'm never happy. I always want to see if I can, you know, improve it. Uh, for me, the um, the competitions, um, it, it's a great way of getting feedback because if you're winning, it means you're getting it right. If you're not winning, it means possibly you need to do, to do something about it that you, your work needs to improve a bit. And um, so the, the competitions um, have been great and, and I've been very very fortunate and been very successful um, on that um, through the MPA and also WPPI I got a, a, a grand award on the w, which was a huge thrill and the, the fellowship as well um, that with both the BIPP and the MPA that to me was a massive thrill because I never thought I'd be good enough ever I remember the first time I attended the MPA awards when it was called the British Professional Photography Awards and they used to have a fellowship wall and I used to look at the pictures and think never be as good as that I won't be able to produce work like that and then you know 10 years later I've, I've, I've got one and um, and that is I think down to allowing your work to be critiqued and always wanting to improve never being arrogant and, and thinking oh my work's brilliant I, I don't need to improve um, it's just like recently in the last couple of years I haven't won as many awards as I've done so I'm thinking well now possibly I need to up my game a little bit more and I've been making an effort of just trying to change a few things um, and at the end of the day when you start winning competitions awards a lot of people say yes it's a bit of an ego trip and yes it is it is a bit of an ego trip but the client benefits at the end of the day because you learn with, with for instance going to the fellowship your work has to be absolutely top notch and the, the, the standards the judges expect are extremely high and that then naturally filters down those standards that you have to meet filter down into your clients work so your client gets a better quality product so um, I, 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 I think the whole awards thing and the competitions is, is, is a great thing real beneficial for me it's a lovely I think that's a lovely viewpoint I've not heard it expressed like that before in, in quite such clear tones anyway where it actually benefits your client directly yeah 
I mean, I can, I can, I've seen the argument it benefits your marketing, that's for sure. Yeah. It certainly helps your confidence. But to directly help your client, I think, yeah. is a lovely thing. No, because I, I, learned, I learned stuff from, um, um, I, I learned stuff during the fellowship process. You know, um, I mean, only it can be tiny little things. It's like, for instance, we were talking, without going, so it will take too long to explain, but I was told my white backgrounds in my fellowship were too white, which to me, I just went, what? And then it was pointed out to me. And now, you know, you told me to take the white. So instead of like 255 on the on the level scale, take it down to 252, 253. So it's just a... Um, and um, I thought that was load of nonsense, absolute rubbish. But now, if I do any brilliant white backgrounds, <laughs> I tell you, because it looks, it gives the picture a slight more depth. It's so un, it's it, it's so subtle, and it's just and, and so I take that back. But I, I thought <laughs> I, I I remember thinking what a load of nonsense. But I just is, do it never, to keep you happy. Yeah, you never said that to me. I did. I thought it was not. I I, I I remember talking to my mentor, Kevin Wilson, the great Kevin Wilson, and he sort of go. But I now look at that and think, actually, I think you've got. And it, because it also affected how the ink went on the paper, um, because it it gave without it, it gave the picture a slight bronzy effect on the dark parts. So, um, and and being as I said open to that critiques and things like. That. And as I said, it has filtered down into my into my clients' yeah. work. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I benefit. And that's just one small thing, but it's just, the you know, upping the quality yeah. of the work. Well, you have very, very lucky clients. That I can tell you because your work is stunning. And I'm a bigger fan of your work now after the end of this interview than oh, I ever you. was before. That's very nice of you. I think, I think the industry needs more people like you. I think a combination of supreme talent and modesty is... Wonderful. That's very nice. I, I don't take myself too seriously. I'm not an arty person. You were talking about, we were talking about creativity before we started this, and I'm not a, an arty person. There's lots of people out there who want to express a view and opinion about something and, you know, uh, and express something that means a lot to them. I, I don't do any of that. I just want to produce work that people like to look at. And it, it, I always find it quite fascinating listening to clients or people talking about their, their interpretation. I mean, I've got a photo in my reception area of a girl, it's a nude, a girl leaning over with her hands buried in her face. And and she's got a tattoo running around. It's a lovely texture on uh, on the background and stuff like that. And that did me very well in the MPA awards. And um, a lot of people look at that and they say, oh yes, it symbolizes despair and things like that. And it's so far from the truth. Um, because I'm not actually very good at coming up with ideas. That's why I get my ideas, everything straightforward and simple. And so the shot is her just with her hands buried in her head. And the only reason why I shot that is because I think the, the model had been out and had a few drinks the night before and she was really tired and she just went, oh, I'm really tired and rubbed her, started rubbing her face. And I thought, that's the shot. And, she, she, um, and that's how I did it. And a lot of my most successful shots have been... From accidents yeah. so I'd like to say oh yeah I sat there and thought of up the idea and I don't because I'm actually pretty rubbish at doing things like that um, I don't like being put on the spot I don't know can you suddenly think of an idea if you're put on the spot or no but I'm, I'm like you I'm an observer of people yeah so I, 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 it's like I look for what um, I don't sit there sort of staring at people I do a lot of talking during shoots just nattering any old rubbish and I'll just talk and they, they, they might just suddenly fall into a pose and something yeah that's it, that's, it. That's, that's the pose 
Um, and that that has worked really, really well for me over the years. Yeah. And if you can animate someone, so if you can keep them moving, yeah. they'll fall into a lot of poses. Yeah, but you've, somebody's got to work fast because otherwise, yeah. it, otherwise um, it, it gets something because they become conscious of what they're doing and um, that you've, you've, you've got to... To, um, to, to work. I mean, I remember one, one really successful shot I did of a dad kissing a baby, and the baby was looking straight onto camera, and the dad was at profile, so he's kissing the baby on the... And we'd finished the shoot, and he was just holding the baby whilst, um, I think the baby just peed all over his mum. And he was just holding the baby. Sonny saw it, and the lights weren't positioned, nothing. And I just suddenly saw her staring at me, picked up the camera, and I just said to Douglas, don't move, bang, got it. And we took five shots, and we got one shot of it absolutely spot on but yeah yeah so my some of my most successful shots were accidents i think lord snowden uh yeah snowden used to say that a lot of his portraits were down to luck but it's, it's down to luck and a knowledge of your craft but you can make luck i think yeah to a degree yeah, yeah. But certainly it's knowing when you're looking at something yeah the, the the ability to know that's the moment yeah 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 and on that happy note this is the moment I'm going to call it. I've been watching that clock yeah, behind you. Yeah, because to go, because I'm watching you photograph some dogs later. <laughs> it's not because I've got to go. It's because we tried to keep the podcast for about an hour. Oh, right. Have we talked that long? Yep. Blimey. Um, well, 50 minutes talking, and yeah. I've got 10 minutes of intro and outro to do. So Right, yes. Uh, David Carver, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for letting us come to your lovely home and studio, um, spending time with you, which I always enjoy anyway, Good. and seeing just how you create some of this stuff. Great stuff. Uh, I cannot wait to put this podcast out there. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. So there you go. Like I said, a super nice guy uh, with an awful lot of experience. He's been around this industry quite a long time. Many tales to tell and some salutary lessons. Uh, I think for all of us, if you've enjoyed this podcast, and I really hope you have, please do share it amongst your friends. Let's get this thing out there. Uh, our audience is steadily growing and it's just wonderful, particularly on the state side. So if you feel like sharing it, we'd be forever grateful. Uh, leave us a review. You can leave reviews on iTunes is the best place to do that. Uh, leave us reviews and ratings uh, if you'd like to uh, get regular updates so you know the podcasts come out straight away then of course you can subscribe wherever you happen to uh, get your podcasts uh, we're available on Podbean we're available on iTunes we're available on Spotify and on Radio Public uh, and of course you can go across to the home uh, of the podcast which is the masteringportraitphotography.com website that's masteringportraitphotography.com and if you're into photography particularly of dogs we've just published a video on there of how I create some of the images I'm quite, no, no, quite well known for, uh, photographing dogs on black backgrounds uh, or just various shots of dogs in daylight. So if that floats your boat, then head across to Mastering Portrait Photography where you will be able to see that particular video. So until next time, when I get to talk a little bit about the convention and a few of the things that have gone on uh, in the uh, past week or two, then remember, be kind to yourself. Take care.